Military Mom Talk Radio. We know behind every soldier, sailor, airman, and marine is the family supporting them. With over 200 episodes in 17 countries, over five seasons, with three million monthly listeners, we are Radio Strong. Now, here are your hosts, Sandra Beck and Robin Boyd. Hey, everybody, this is Sandra Beck, and I'm here with James Ben, and he wrote this great book called Road of Bones. It's part of the Billy Boy. Billy Boyle World War II mystery uh, series, and it is the most beautiful book that I have received this year, hands down. And even before we dive into what's between the covers, I want to talk about this cover because you guys have to go to Amazon or wherever books are sold and look up James R. Ben and Road of Bones and check out this cover because it is it is frame worthy. And I don't say that very often. I think it's been probably two or three years since I've waxed this poetic about a cover before even opening the book. So welcome, James, to the show. Thank you. And that's the, the best introduction I've ever had. So <laughs> I really appreciate that you, you took in all the design work that went into that cover. And uh, it's it's really something. Well, and you know, when 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 I go to a bookstore and I'm an avid consumer and obviously an avid reader, and that's why I love to have authors on my show, there is something about the weight of a book, the cover of a book. And of course, the smell of a book, you know, that's all that goes into the reading process. But also, if you're or your publisher is expecting me to dump twenty five or thirty dollars on a book, you know, that's a pretty yep. stiff price for a one read. And I can read this probably in a day. So you're asking me to not go out to dinner or put a quarter of a tank of gas in my car for your book. And sometimes I don't think authors recognize how much money they're asking us to spend on a book. And when I see a book like this that I can hold with pride in the airport, that's beautifully designed and obviously great care has been taken into this. I don't even think about the price. I look at it and go, you know what? The dust jacket is beautiful. And I, I've already developed a relationship with you, Jim, and I haven't met you and I haven't read your book yet. And that's what I felt when I picked up your book. Oh, great. Great to hear. So tell me, how did the cover come about? Well, when I, I've been published by Soho Press. Uh, this is my 16th book. And uh, back when I started with them in 2006, they had, a, they had a very smart branding approach. Their covers all had the same design. They're, each author had, it was a different picture. But if you walked into a library or a bookstore, you could at a glance say, that's a Soho Press book. So it was a very smart move. But they told me, we're going to do something different for you. We're going to contract out the artwork. It's, it's going to be nothing like we've ever done before. And they kept it a big secret. So this is the, the introductory title, uh, Billy Boyle, who is the protagonist. That was the, that's the title of the first book. Uh, and just a few months before uh, publication, they sent me a PDF. They said, don't tell anybody, don't show this, but we're showing you. And it was a gorgeous cover. It, uh, the protagonist is standing tall. It's like a Art Deco movie poster. There's scenes from plot points surrounding him like you would see on an old-fashioned movie poster. 
One of the plot points involved a 1936 Riley Imp, which is a British sports car. And I swear, I am not lying. When they sent me the PDF, it was, and, and the car is blown up. Uh, so it's a burning car. The artist used a 1960 Corvette in a World War II mystery set in 1942 Great Britain. Wow. And so I had to call him up and say, whoa, uh, this, is, this is beautiful. But, 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 and they had already paid for uh, the artwork. And uh, they were at first like, oh, well, and they said, oh, no, we'll change it. So since I rescued them from a good deal of embarrassment, uh, every year now, when the, a book comes out every year, uh, they say, well, Jim, do you have any ideas for the cover? Would you like to look at a preliminary drawing? So it's a lot of fun because I get to suggest ideas for the covers. And most authors don't have that. Uh, uh, you know, publishers just don't want the interference, I think, because some people might get a little too picky or whatever. But each cover and all of the, well, except, well, even the first one, uh, I've had some input on. Um, and I was just moments ago emailing uh, with a publisher about next year's book, uh, which is uh, set in the Mediterranean and, and coming up with ideas for that. So it's a lot of fun. This cover is not only a, a dynamite artwork job, but it features uh, an incredibly uh, little known group of uh, Russian women uh, who were called the, the night witches, flyers who bombed the Germans at night. Uh, and it was a name that the Germans gave them. And it wasn't, it wasn't out of respect. Uh, they really right. hated these women. Uh, they called them Nachthexen, night, night witches. But they took the name on with a certain amount of pride. And as you can see on the cover, she's not flying a, a, moder a, a, a modern aircraft uh, in 1944. These were old biplanes that had been used in the 20s and 30s for crop dusting. Uh, it was very dangerous work uh, that these women did, but uh, they're part of the story. And, and it was my suggestion. Let's put them on the cover because hardly anybody knows about the Night Witches. Jim, as we're talking today about the Billy Boyle series and how it's rooted in military history, I want to take a minute to stop and thank our sponsor. Our sponsor today is Raycon. And now Raycon is spelled R-A-Y-C-O-N. And it's never too early to start gift shopping for the holidays. And you guys know this because they're right around the corner, especially because today you can save big on a gift that your friends and family will use every day, wireless earbuds by Raycon. Now, these are really small and they're mighty. And I use them for running, walking in the park when I'm shopping and doing errands because they're very discreet. They're actually really pretty and they come in five different colors, frost white, rose gold, flare red, electric blue, and carbon black. So there is a color for everybody on your holiday wish list. And with seamless Bluetooth pairing and a comfortable noise isolating fit, you can start listening right away and keep listening for hours because the audio quality is amazing. And that is comparable to what you get from other premium brands, except Raycon starts at half the price. And Raycon offers eight hours of playtime and a 32-hour battery life. And that is really important, you guys, because you don't want to be on the go and having to stop and charge these things all the time. There's also a built-in mic, and you can take calls on 
your earbuds at the press of a button. So this holiday season, give your friends and family something they can use for calls or music, for work or play, at home, on the go, working out, take it on the park with you and take a walk and just enjoy the beautiful world that we live in. Or pick up a pair for yourself. Trust me, you're going to use them every day. And I have two pairs. I have a rose gold and a and a flare red because I like to keep the red at my work, on my desk. I can always find them. And my rose gold travels with me, goes wherever I go because everything I have in my digital arsenal is rose gold. So if you love rose gold and you know I do, go and check them out. So go buy Raycon.com slash Military Mom by Raycon.com slash Military Mom today to unlock exclusive deals up to 20% off your Raycon order. But hurry, this offer is available for a limited time only and you don't want to miss it. That's by Raycon.com slash Military Mom by Raycon.com slash Military Mom to unlock up to 20% off your Raycons by Raycon.com slash Military Mom. You'll be so glad you did. Now today we're talking with James R. Ben and James has written books going back to two. 2006, and they are best-selling books in military history and military genre. And these are really interesting because they are part of the Billy Boyle World War II mystery series. And we're talking to him today about the Night Witches, which is something I never heard about. I didn't know about the Night Witches. And I think it's something that is really interesting. It's rooted in history. And we get to have this Billy Boyle adventure at the same time. You know, I Googled that. That, you know, I have, you know, screens, you know, while I'm doing shows so I can fact check and look up what you're talking about. And what's interesting, I did type into Google Night Witches and they came up and the lady on your cover is in the same jumpsuit. Like this is not only, you know, kind of quasi historically accurate, you know, blending your story, you know, with the things, but you know, when I go up and I look up their uniforms, like she's in in that uniform and she looks very much like, you know, most of these night witches yeah. are fair haired. You know, they're light yeah. brown hair, light skin, blonde, a lot of blonde hair. Yeah. Um, you know, so I think that that is fabulous. And one of the things that you said about um, the, you know, kind of the world war ii era movie posters Mm -hmm. this is very reminiscent of that but it also has that cool flavor of the soviet um like the soviet um propaganda publication right yeah Soviet realism yeah so there's a flavor in there you know um that kind of combines like so if somebody is like me and a huge fact checker if your mother says she loves you check it out you know if you tell me this is world war ii era if you tell me this is night witches if you tell me this is a certain kind of airplane you know a certain biplane and i'm looking at what the soviet night witches flew and we are spot on so i think that again this proves my point that a beautifully designed articulate cover probably gives you at least a fighting chance that what you're going to find in there is accurate where we need it to be accurate fact checked and created in a way so that you know austin powers isn't driving through in his 1960 convertible (laughs) in you know 1942 yeah exactly yeah so tell me how did you how did you settle on this era this genre well i I have to go way back because in 1972, 
I went to the movies and it was the opening day of The Godfather. And if you remember that scene, Michael Corleone is just, has just returned as a Marine Corps captain. And it's the wedding party. It's this big outside yeah. garden party. It's August, 1945. Uh, he's got the Navy cross. He's the only guy there in uniform because it's a mafia family. Right. And uh, he's the white sheep. And what struck me sitting in the movies in 1972 is any other wedding party in 1945 with a highly decorated Marine Corps veteran he would have been the center of attention. Yes. But he wasn't. That that just stu stuck in my mind. And I thought, geez, what if Sonny had been the one that had to go to war? What would that have been like? And Sandra, then I did nothing with that for 30 years. But the thought was there. And uh, on my 50th birthday, um, my wife and I were out to dinner. And she's a psychotherapist, so she's always asking about feelings and all that stuff. <laughs> and, and she surprised me. She said, well, what do you want to do with the next 50 years of your life? And I knew that the answer was, I wanted to see if I could write a book. And I didn't even have the thought that I could sell it. I just wanted to see if I could write. Start at the beginning, finish. Um, and... Then the thoughts started coming. Well, what about uh, Irish Boston uh, police? That's pretty close to, you know, Italian mafia. Um, I wanted to have that insular family uh, view where it's the family versus the outside world. Uh, and that's where the character of Billy Boyle comes from. He's a young cop from a family of cops. Uh, he got his job through graft and corruption because uh, his uncle's on the promotion board. Uh, and the, the gimmick, if that's how you want to say it, is that his father and his uncle uh, pull some political strings and get him attached to uh, a very distant relation uh, who's uh, a colonel in Washington, D.C. And that distant relation is Dwight David Eisenhower, who back then, before the war, was just a colonel in the War Plants Department. Sure. Um, so they, they work their magic. And what they don't know is, because I should say, they're good Irish-American, Irish Republicans. They view this whole war as another war for the English Empire. They lost their brother in the First World War. Uh, and they don't want to lose their, their son and their nephew, Billy, in this war for the British. In their view. Um, so they think they're, they're all set. They send Billy to Washington. Uh, he's a lieutenant. Uh, they think he's going to sit in an office. But then Dwight David Eisenhower gets promoted, is sent to command US Army forces in Great Britain. And he takes Billy with him as his military investigator. Uh, and what that does is that that gimmick gives me access to the, to the high command. So I can have Billy go anywhere because Ike is his boss, right? right. So it opens all doors and it allows him to, uh, get into each situation that I want to explore. So each book is built around a real historical event, hopefully one that is not all that well known that needs to be explored. Right. And uh, I, I create a fictional crime that Billy has to go solve. And uh, and then we we get to learn more about the war and what, what it was like for the people fighting it um, and what some of the, um, the tensions were uh, between the allies and uh, 
between the army and the other services. And, and there's a whole lot to explore that way. But the, the, the gimmick of having Ike be his boss is just, uh, it's sort of like a, a zealot. You know, he can yeah. go anywhere, do anything. Right. It just, it, well, it makes all, it makes additional storylines possible in a very believable way. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And I, I've been surprised that the reader reaction to Eisenhower, uh, people like, you know, people respond. Uh, and it might just be because that's sort of a bygone era of leadership, but uh, it, it, it's kind of heartwarming that people want to see a little more of Ike in these stories. So uh, I try to do that every now and then. Yeah, that is really neat. I mean, that's, you know, um, I just think that, you know, in a book that that has action, you know, it's smart. Um it, it's funny at times, you know, you're, you're deft at, you know, weaving humor in without making it slapstick. And then there's a lot of heart in these stories. I think that's why, how many of the Billy Boyle series are there? I, I think it started in, is it 2006? 2006. So this is book number uh, 16. Uh, book number 17 is coming out next September. And I'm just starting on number 18 now. So um and we're only into, you know, kind of uh, November, December, 1944. So there's, there's a lot of war to go. There's a lot of war to go. <laughs> so when you, when you look at these together now, you see like all 16. And what I love about, I just want to share this with the listeners because they can't see you right now. But you're in this like dark blue room. There's a quilt there. It's exactly how I would expect like not Billy Boyle to live, but like, <laughs> you know, you're, you don't have a bookcase behind me with every single one of your books up there. There's a humbleness. There's a, um, an appreciation for the craft that you are a true storyteller. You're not a salesman. Oh, thank you. Thank you. You know, and I think that's, that's why it's always fun to kind of peek under the covers and look behind the scenes of authors. Yeah. Yeah. And I'd like to switch gears for a minute. And I would like to talk to, uh, the the budding authors out there, you know, we're depending on when this show airs, will either be in NaNoWriMo or just finishing NaNoWriMo for this year. And a lot of authors are excited. They're going to put pen to paper. And I always like to take time in an author interview to ask you how you work. Like, what are your best practices? You clearly have done something right in your writing career <laughs> you know how do you structure your day you know NaNoWriMo is like 50,000 words in a month or some crazy right. amount like that I can't remember it I'm not knocking NaNoWriMo you know I think it's a great thing I think it gives people permission to write without worrying about right. what they write or how they write so it's got a lot of good things to it but I also think it's also misleading that at the end of the month, you can have a fully saleable novel. Uh, you, you, can't, you won't, uh, unless you're you a genius. Yeah, but you'll have 50,000 words to work on and to go back over. Um, I, the best working um, mode for me is to write every day and keep the story alive in my head. Uh, and, and right now I haven't started writing the next book yet. I'm just you know, finishing up the edits on the, the next one. So I'm kind of lost. I, I really want to start writing because I like to fall asleep each night thinking, what's Billy gonna do in this situation? And I let my subconscious work on it. But 
Uh, as far as writing practice goes, uh, I'm not an early starter. I'm not a morning person. Uh, but usually by mid-morning, uh, I start writing, get a little done, uh, have lunch, a little nap. And then about you know two o'clock, I get worried. I haven't done enough. And then uh, then I it's like the last 10% of the day, I do 90% of the work. But I, I, I like to write for as long as I can and uh, uh, intersperse that with... Um, uh, it's what my wife and I call going to Block Island. So Block Island is a nice little island off the coast of Rhode Island uh, where my brother-in-law uh, has a summer house. And in the winter, he lets me go out there and get away and because there's nobody there in the winter uh, and just write. Uh, and then we decided I don't actually have to go to Block Island. I just have to say, Debbie, I'm going to Block Island this weekend, which means, you know, no commitments, uh, you know, I'm just going to write and, and there's no expectation of, of doing anything else. And uh, that helps a lot. That focus, two or three days of just nothing but writing. Uh, I'll produce a lot, get a lot of ideas, and then uh, can scale back a little bit and have a more reasonable approach. But um, writing every day, even if it's just a few hundred words, if you can't really do that much, uh, I try to aim for at least a thousand words a day. And my books come in at about 100,000 words. Um, so uh, I don't know how helpful that is, but it, it, yeah. you know, well, it's I just think it's helpful for the person who is feeling that they don't write enough or they, you know, maybe write too much or aren't finding a balance because one of the, the reasons thing I, is, go ahead. They're writing and there's so many people. I mean, you've probably heard this. Oh, I've got this idea for a book. Oh, so what? <laughs> the ideas are, are, yeah, that's nothing. Uh, but if I, if somebody says to me, and I've started writing, I hope, oh, wow, that, that's the biggest step you can take because then you've made a commitment. Uh, right. And uh, as Oscar Wilde said, the art of writing is the art of applying the seat of one's pants to a chair. So <laughs> that, that's what, that's so much of it. Just start working. Um, and the other advice is there's some really good books on writing. On my website, I have a section for writers and I list about a half a dozen books that I recommend. Um, and they're just, uh, there's so much out there that uh, uh, can help you. Some of them are really focused on the nitty gritty. Uh, uh, Reading Like a Writer by Francine Prose is one of them. Uh, and there's a, there's a few others that could really get down to how important the first paragraph is the first sentence um, to, to grasp, to grab your readers. Um, and that's something that, that comes with, with work. Uh, you know, you're going to have to go back and rework those 50,000 words. Um, and here, here's an example. I, I, you know, I do a lot of readings when I do book talks. And a few years ago, I was having trouble picking a reading uh, because it might need too much explanation. It might give something away. Uh, so I started writing. You mean a reading of your book? Yes, uh, at, at a book talk. Yeah. Um, so I decided I'm going to write the first chapter to be my reading because that it won't need any explanation. It won't give anything away. Nice. And that forced me to make it interesting. I can't take my first chapter to sort of leisurely set things up and establish the setting or the place. No, I, the first chapter has to be good enough to serve as a reading. And that has just 
change the way I approach wow. writing. So that that's a, an interesting way to look at it because so many people think they have to uh, introduce an idea early on, but you don't. You need to grab the reader's attention and then introduce the idea. I love that. I love that. That is such great advice. And I love that, you know, I checked out your website while you were talking, you know, and sure enough, there are, you know, your recommended reads for, for new writers, because I think, you know, everybody has to find their own sweet spot, you know, but there are certain things that hold true for all good books. You know, there's a framework that we expect there's, you know, an arc or a, a hero's journey, you know, whatever, whatever the genre or, you know, a, a meet cute, you know, all these things that, that we look for as readers doesn't mean you have to have every single one in there, but you have to know what, what, what your audience is looking for. Cause you, you do have to understand yourself or you write for the, uh, for the author, who do you write for? I, I don't want to sound too, uh, I write for the dead. I, I want to tell a story about what happened to people in the war in a way that will help people to understand what they went through. And one of the most meaningful responses I ever got uh, was when somebody wrote me and said, I went to visit my father's grave and I took one of your books with me. And they had gone to Europe and made the pilgrimage and it helped them understand. So in these stories, as you said, there's humor, there's interesting characters, but at the heart of it, I just want people to come away with a feeling of what it was like. And that notion came to me when I was writing my second book. I started it a week after 9-11. Wow. And it was the first time in my life, Sandra, I didn't know what was going to happen next, yeah. historically. And then I realized, neither did these guys. You know, we look back on the war now, and we know, you know, Pearl Harbor, D-Day, sure. A-bomb, we won. But they, they didn't know. It was a new day every day. Uh, and I started that second book with the line, it was dark. And I was at sea because that's exactly how I felt. I just, the skies were empty. I didn't know what was going to happen. And I've tried to remember that feeling in each book. Uh, when I do research, I stop reading uh, at, the, at the month that I'm writing in to just make believe that I don't know how this particular situation gotcha. is going to evolve. And it's just a little mind trick, uh, but it helps. Mm -hmm. So do you, do you plot? Do you pants? Like, you know, that's the million dollar question. You get all these ideas and you do your research. When you do your research, are, do you have a framework? Like what, what do you, do you have a formula that you are comfortable with or do you just let it all coalesce and then come out? Yeah, that, that's it. I, I, you know, Hemingway had the iceberg theory uh, and the iceberg theory was that the, the majestic, uh, drift of an iceberg is due to the fact that nine-tenths of it is underwater. So you do all your research, but you don't need to use it all. The more informed you are, the more confident you'll be, and the less you'll need to throw data points out to people. Um, so I tend to read a, a tremendous amount 
anything to do with the subject I'm writing about. Uh, and to the point at which it just fills my brain and I feel like I could be plopped down in 1944 and know which way to go on the street. Gotcha. Um, but I know what, what I want to write about too. I know what the, the situation is like the night witches and this book is about uh, US uh, Air Force bases and the Soviet Union. So I know all that. And I usually have some uh, plot points in my mind. I'm writing towards this event. I'm writing then towards this event. Uh, but it's really the characters that define what happens along the way. And they tend to take on a life of their own. Uh, and it, at some point, it just becomes obvious that this is how these people have to act in this situation. So I'm pretty much a pantser. I, I, I did try plotting a book out once. Uh, and I, I had I actually used these big, you know, those giant post-it notes that oh, you can yeah. put up. Uh, so I, I decorated my office with these huge post-it notes and I mirrored the hero's journey and my plot points. Then I didn't look at that stuff for a year. It hung all around me for a year. Uh, and when I was done, <laughs> I had the hero's journey, but it was an entirely different story. So sure. it's just, uh, you know, it's, it's just how people's brains work. Some yeah. people have to do an outline. That's their creative process. And and people who are pantsers just think of, think it through differently. But it's yeah. all the same thing. Well, that's why, you know, that's why I love to have these, you know, this time with you to see, like to get in your mind and to see, you know, kind of how how the these things create, because there's, you know, especially in the era of YouTube, you know, there's a million young writers out there saying, this is the way you do it. This is what you should do. But I love to learn from you because you have a proven track record of success, clearly doing something right and how it works for you. And I do think writing is very individualized. Yeah. It's private. You're by yourself most of the time. And creating a balance between a personal life and a writing life is, you know, one of the common questions that I get whenever I put these kind of podcasts up. And I'm not a definitive person, Jim. I'm somebody who says what works for you. And maybe I'll try it because maybe it'll work for me. But if it doesn't work for me, I'm a-okay trying something else. Right. right. And one of the big advantages I have is uh, I mentioned my wife is a psychotherapist. She retired a few years back, and I was a little worried. You know, she could she could want to you know do stuff and <laughs> take away from my writing time. And she uh, decided to uh, take up a side business as a copy editor. So now she's doing copy editing. She helps me with my book, obviously, but she has other work. So we're we've got a whole writing team thing going on. Isn't it's that great. wonderful? Yeah, yeah, it's a lot of fun. I love that. I love that. Um, so I would love for you to um, share with me if you could just give the young writers today that are listening today's episode, like your best piece of advice. Like you've said, go to your website, which is uh, James, J-A-M-E-S, R as in Richard? Robert. 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 Okay, Ben, and it's B-E-N-N. -N. So jamesrben.com. You're going to want to look him up on Amazon. And I really want you guys to Google Night Witches. And I really want you to Google World War II movie posters and World War II Russian propaganda, because <laughs> that's where you'll be like, yeah. you know, if you're like me and you're like, wow, that is so cool to see how 
that became this, which I think is also part of the enjoyment of the reading process. Um, and, you know, you gave some books that you recommend. What's your best piece of advice for someone who is at that precipice of, I have an idea, I've just started writing, and... Well, a couple of things. One is, if you can find a writing group that's supportive, uh, and that will help do good critiques uh, and uh, will expect a lot of you. Uh, that's gold because it, you know, if you ask your friends, if you ask your mom, you know, they're all going to say it's great. And it's, yeah, that's nice. But to find a writing group, um, and I, I'm just going to put a little ad in. Uh, my wife has just published a book called All Right, uh, and it's about how to create writing groups and sustain them. Yeah. It's cool. All, yeah. A-L-L, right. Like, like, you know, all right, yeah. all right, all right. Right, a play um, on words. Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, it, so if you can find that, that that's something you should treasure. Uh, and the other piece of advice is to start reading critically. Um, it, it's hard work because a lot of people, you know, you want to read for relaxation, but reading critically and that uh that's uh nancy friday's book on my list uh is, is trying to stay uh, engaged with an analysis of the writer's craft when you're reading uh, because you, you can just read for pleasure and not even think about it but you're wasting a lot of opportunity because you've got in front of you all these books by published authors well how did they do it you can try to deconstruct what they did um, but it's a lot of work. Um, it is a lot of work. Yeah. And I think that's another thing you just have to be prepared for. It's a lot of work to write um, and to do it right. Um, so anyway, a writing group and, and critical reading. Uh, and just pat yourself on the back that you're writing. That, that's a wonderful thing. Right. That's, that's, you know, I can't tell you how many uh, proposals I get for my radios, you know, I've been doing this 16 years, so I've got pretty good traction around the world. And they'll say, I have a book and it's almost done. And I want to come on and talk about it. And I'm yeah. like, I don't interview anybody who has not either completed a self-published or gone through a traditional publishing house and sent that book to me because I made a mistake once in my career. I love the letter. I loved everything about it. I loved the sample I got. I did the interview. It was a great interview and they never finished. Yeah. You know, I have to admit the first book I wrote, uh, which was before all these, I had the same thought. I actually thought maybe I should get in touch with publishers now and let them know I'm writing this book because it's so good. Yeah. You, know, you, you have to have that enthusiasm yes. to go on, but then you have to rein it in at the right time. And everybody gets too enthusiastic and everybody thinks they're ready before they are. Yes. Before the book has been proofread, copy edited. I mean, if you send anything, it has to be perfect. It's got to be your best possible work. 
whether it's the first three chapters or, or, or whatever. And, and I think that reading in that enthusiasm while keeping it your own creative juices flowing is a very hard balance. Well, that's where I think the writer's group comes in. You know, you need support. It It's yeah. a solo activity, but it's not a solo career. It's a career that needs a lot of support. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Well, so what's coming up next? You said you got some books coming out and you got a book coming out next year? Uh, yes. Next year, the book is called Shadows, uh, and it comes, was inspired by uh, the song, the partisan song that Leonard Cohen made famous. Uh, and it was a, a very haunting song, and it was commissioned uh, by the French government in exile uh, to be played over Radio London as a morale booster. Oh, wow. Uh, and uh, it, it was whistled in the street. If there were no Germans around, people would whistle the tune to show that they were um, uh, yeah, that they were part of the resistance or sympathetic. Uh, but it's also about being in the shadows. That's part of the lyrics. Uh, and how can you come out of the shadows when, when the war is over? Uh, so that the book uh, for next year explores that and also uh, a very famous military unit, the 442nd Regimental Combat Team, which was made up mostly of uh, Japanese Americans who had been incarcerated in the detention camps, the Nisai, uh, you know, first generation Americans. Uh, they were imprisoned uh, unconstitutionally. Uh, and then when the army uh, recruited them, their unit went on to become the most highly decorated unit in the American army per capita. Uh, and they were very ill-used uh, in southern France uh, when they were attached to uh, an infantry division. So uh, this book also uh, bears witness to that and tells their story. Um, but I've just had a, a, a separate book, a standalone come, come out, um, and the title is Shard. Uh, and it explores the POW experience during the Korean War. Uh, I had this idea that I wanted to write a book uh, about a returning POW after I read uh, Laura Hillenbrand's uh, Unbroken. Uh, and at the end of that book, this is about the prisoners of war held by the Japanese in World War II. Uh, at the end of the book, she interviewed a bunch of survivors and one of them talked about how he could never stop stealing food because he survived by stealing food when he could from the Japanese. And uh, he still would, he'd go out to dinner and he'd steal packets of sugar or he'd walk over to a store and slip a can of tuna fish in his pocket. He couldn't stop. And I thought that's a fascinating psychological twist to build a character around. Yeah. So I was going to have returning POW from World War II with, with that uh, twitch. And then I thought, well, maybe I'll make a career just updated a little bit. But then I started reading about what happened in Korea to our prisoners. Uh, over 7,000 Americans were captured and they had the highest mortality rate of any war. It was wow. worse than the Japanese camps, which were horrible because in large part, because it was the first war in which our captors wanted to ideologically uh, change the minds of the prisoners. They, they were, we called it brainwashing, which was just an, a label to put on uh, uh, to cover up the failures of the government to prepare the troops for what they might find because nobody expected this. Um, and the, the, they, the brainwashing 
just it turns out really didn't exist. You could you could coerce people, uh, you could bribe them with food. Some would give in and make propaganda broadcasts, but for the most part, uh, they didn't. And uh, when they when these guys came back, uh, the government made them sign uh, a security document not to reveal what went on in the camps, so they could never tell their story. Oh wow! And there were there was an instance of one fellow who kept a list because the the North Koreans and the Chinese would just kill prisoners on a whim and never kept any records. So this guy kept a list of hundreds of names. Uh, and at times it would be found, it would be destroyed, and he recreated it from memory. Wow. He brought it back, like written on, you know, the back of cigarette wrappers and chewing gum wrappers. And when he tried to give it to the army, they didn't want it. Wow. Because it would, it, it would, it put the army in a bad light. And if finally, in, in 1998 or something like that, um, the army acknowledged it. He was given the silver star for what he did. Um, but it took a long time. So yeah. Shard is uh, an exploration of how these guys dealt with being in the camps and some better than others. Mm -hmm. And the character's name is Ethan Shard. And it, the funny thing is, one way before I started writing this, I was getting on an airplane and they had boarded military personnel first, you know, like sure. first class upgrades. So I walked by this guy in uh, first class and he's got his army uniform on, it was name tag and it was Shard. And I thought, what a name. So I just filed that away. Um, and and it, it's, it works in this book because it signifies the shattering of his character into Shards and sure. he's going to, to, to rebuild it in this whole process. So that has just come out and uh, that's my, my most recent title, but that's that's a one-off standalone. Yeah, but that's very interesting, and thank you for sharing it. And all of these books can be bought wherever books are sold: Amazon, Barnes and Noble. Right, right. Love yep. that, love that. So I want to thank you so much for being my guest today. We've been here today with James R. Ben. That's two N's, B E N N. If either Shard or Road of Bones or any of the 16 white novels that you have mm -hmm. under your yes. belt sound interesting to you. These also make great holiday gifts. I have to tell you, one of the things I loved about this, I am a sandwich generation kid. I care for elders and I care for uh -huh. youngers. Yeah. My dad is 89 and this will be his Christmas present. This awesome. year. And I'm holding mm -hmm. up Road of Bones because it's perfect and it's unique and different enough and it really is gift worthy it's very rare that i tell a book should be a gift but this is as pretty as it is functional and it's well researched if you liked what you heard today i encourage you to get your copy of road of bones a billy Boyle world war ii mystery i think you're going to love it it's a and there's a lot to love about this book and also check out shard that sounds very interesting and um Thank you, James. I want you guys to check out his website. It's jamesrben.com. You'll be glad you did. If you're a new writer and you're doing NaNoWriMo coming up, I wish you the best of luck and go ahead and check out James's recommended and essential books about writing. You'll be glad you did. We'll be back again soon. Thank you, Sandra. Thanks for spending time with us today on Military Mom Talk Radio. 
We've got more than 200 episodes available to you anytime on iTunes or at our website, MilitaryMomTalkRadio.com. Find us on Facebook or Twitter. We look forward to another great conversation with you on Military Mom Talk Radio.